VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, May the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That can only happen if you join us live on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So we'll ease in a little bit. And big action on the ice over the week, and of course, big hockey news. Congratulations to all involved in the Avalon Celtics U9 Novice Select Tournament that happened over the weekend. Massive success. Uh, apparently everybody involved had a real great time, and that's what it's all about, right? Of course. But of course, we had a couple of winners as well. Congratulations to the Cornerbrook Royals. They made their way from the West Coast to participate in the tournament. They won the Alex Newhook Division 8-3 over their Southern Shore. And the Northeast Eagles, champs baby, they say on their Twitter feed, they won the Abbey Newhook division, so congratulations to those two teams and the other eight who participated in this wonderful event. Good time had by all, absolutely brilliant. Okay, down at Mary Brown Center tonight, the Growlers trying to polish off the Trois-Rivières-Lyon in game number six, had a 3-1 lead, and here we are in six, so go get them tonight. Growlers, and a quick check-in. Up at the Don Johnson Cup where the Mount Pearl Blades were representing the province. Didn't go their way necessarily on the ice. They lost to the Kent Coyotes 2-1 in the semis. But a couple of players won individual awards. Uh, Nick French was named an all-star at forward. And Noah Hardy was named the most sportsmanlike player in the event. Congratulations to both. Safe travels home to EE. All right, what's the scribble? Oh, yeah, so we also had some participants... uh, Playing up along in the U15 AAA Eastern Icebreakers female hockey tournament. Again, didn't quite go our way in winning the championship or anything, but yet a couple of notables who were winning individual awards. Maria Groves was named to the tournament all-star team. Congratulations to Maria. And Jennifer Murphy, she was the top goalie for the entire tournament, so congratulations to you. They call her Jenny, apparently. Congratulations to both. And... Over the weekend, Dawson Mercer and his New Jersey Devils, they polish off the regular season. We'll advance no further. But again, what an amazing season for a rookie. He had never played more than like 39 or 40 games in a season. But this year, he played all 82 games for the Devils, the only player on the team to do so. He polished off his uh, season with a tally, his 42nd point on the year. Just an absolutely brilliant season. And of course, young Alex Nook and the Colorado Avalanche, they begin their playoff run tomorrow night, taking on Nashville. And, you know, I don't want to say it too loud, but here's another local with a possibility of winning a Stanley Cup because certainly the Avalanche are in, they're in play. Who knows what's going to happen, of course. It's a long road to win 16 games and hoist the Stanley Cup, but anyway, off they go. A couple of other quick notes, and this one is absolutely extraordinary. So over the weekend, there was a massive volleyball tournament. I don't think people realize just how big volleyball is in the province. So the provincials were uh, being held Crosby Road at the Provincial Training Center. And congratulations to all involved. We're going to mention one team in particular. The O'Donnell Senior Male Volleyball Team. They won the U18 Male A Tier 1 Championship. Undefeated in the tournament 6-0. But get this. They wrap up their season 31-0. Absolutely amazing run for the O'Donnell team. 31-0, and and I'm told by some inside baseball knowledgeable folks that they only dropped a handful of sets the entire year. They're sending a bunch of players off to college. A couple of university scholarship players are on that O'Donnell team, so that's really quite something over the weekend and good for them. 
And this might be one of very few times that I've brought some gymnastics in. And yes, we can talk about all the big issues of the day. This is just easing us in on a Monday morning, right? Will Osmond, he goes to Holy Spirit High. He was at the 2022 Atlantic Men's Championships over the weekend. He won gold on rings and silver on vault. And of course, rings is a real feat of strength. So apparently we've got some good young gymnastics uh, gymnasts in the province as well. So congratulations to Will. Good on you, young man. Okay, off we go. Today in history, science fiction makes its debut on the silver screen. The very first science fiction film was released today in 1902. It was called A Trip to the Moon, and now back to Earth. So the House of Assembly reopens today after their Easter break, and obviously there is no end to the issues that they need to be discussing to try to ease the burden on the people of the province. So hopefully, just hopefully, they can kind of shelve some of the political shenanigans and grandstanding for the camera because things are just getting a little bit too precarious to try to think that there's any opportunity for some of the half-witted barbs being flicked around the House of Assembly and banging the tops of the desks. There's always going to be some of it, but let's see if we can not only ask questions and hopefully get some answers, but also all hands provide anything you can do to put some solutions that can be considered to ease what's happening in the province. So where do you even start? There's some talk about pay equity legislation. They've been talking about that forever. There's the issue about calling for Eddie Joyce to be suspended until he provides required financial disclosure. Curiously on that one, and that comes from Bruce Chalk, the Commissioner of Legislative Standards. Mr. Joyce says that he's already submitted them. He also goes on to say that there were other members of the House Assembly that missed the deadline, and consequently, this might be just some payback because of the lawsuit brought forward by Eddie Joyce. Leave that aside. Healthcare. It's hard to even know where to start anymore. You know, knowing the fact that Eastern Health's been relying on doctors from Ottawa, and that's all the way back since uh, 2020, uh, 2020 in December. Four surgeons from the university have been performing surgeries in St. John's on a rotating basis. We have lost three heart surgeons since the beginning of the pandemic. And reasons why are a little bit muddy on some fronts. There are a bunch of people obviously waiting for said procedures. And it's not just cardiac procedures. It's everything. Someone sent me an email before the show. Two-week wait for a blood test. So understanding where we are and the pathway to streamline some services inside of the healthcare model, and whether it be, you know, a continued focus on merging all four regional health authorities into one, which creates a pretty unwieldy behemoth of a government department, but wherever we go with healthcare, we can certainly talk about it because the the stories are just unbelievable at at every level regarding healthcare. Whether it be the professionals working in the system and or the patients and their family who are waiting for any procedure, diagnostic testing, whatever the case may be. And I know many communities have already lost their doctor. You know, St. Albans comes to mind, and many other communities who have been talking about the, their issues, whether it be Burgio or Harbor Breton or Bay Vert, what have you. When you get some historical context associated with some of these communities, come June, Fogo Island might find themselves without a doctor for the first time since 1792. I mean, that's really quite something when you say it out loud. The first time they won't have a resident doctor since 1792. So there you go. There's also some thoughts out there that continue to be put forward about scurrying around, looking for a deal to try to pay out of pocket for a rapid antigen test. The province has distributed over 5 million of them to whether it be schools or congregate living facilities, what have you, healthcare workers. But people are still scrambling if they're trying to do the right thing by themselves, their families, their friends, their co-workers, to if there's an inkling and if you're a close contact, to test yourself. 
Okay. With everything else costing so much, and we'll get to some cost of living issues regarding fuels, which went up huge again on Friday. The PUB with their classic news release, as opposed to any further elaboration on what's going on. So the rapid antigen test. You know, you don't really want government involved in setting prices. You know, they're always going to have it when they talk about cigarettes or alcohol, and that's part of their bag. But when we're talking about a remaining crisis for many people, especially if you're, you're trying to make decisions about how and where you spend your few dollars, does it make any sense? Because I don't want government involved too much in these things. But does it make any sense to set a ceiling on the price? Because it's also about access, affordability, where you are. There are some companies that are selling the, the test kits at cost, which will include slip, uh, shipping, good on them. But do we want government involved? Someone put that forward or planted that seed in my ear or my eyeballs when I read their email. Is, you know, is that an opportunity that we'd like to see government consider? We're one of only three provinces in the country, New Brunswick, PEI, and us, that don't have free distribution of these test kits, which can be very helpful. You know, it's fundamentally easy enough to say, if you don't feel well, stay home. But people would like to know whether or not they actually have the virus. Because it's one thing to have a cold, quite another to have a very highly infectious virus, like we've seen with Omicron and the variant, the subvariant of. Anyway, you want to talk about it, we can indeed do it, because there's a lot to that. So whatever you think you want to help set the agenda for the House of Assembly, probably a very good idea. Okay. This is a good story, which leads us into more consideration of what the possibility or the potential for regionalization includes. And I know a lot of people don't even want to think about it or talk about it, but if the government has the way, the finalization of the plan will happen sometime late in 2024. Here's a couple of examples. So we know that the Mike Adam Recreation Complex in Wabush has been closed since January. It was open for 50 years. There was the need, so says the town of Wabush, for Lab City to quote-unquote, pay their fair share, or to be involved in the cost-sharing. There's now a proposal on the table. It would see some cost-sharing on things like this, but you would remain, both towns keep their identity and their governments intact, but evaluating the prospect of sharing some costs, which is the starting point of regionalization. And for many communities who think that that's it, my community as I know it, and my historical attachment to the community is gone if there's any regionalization, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Look at some examples where it's absolutely worked. C consider Conception Harbor. So this fellow named Mike Doyle, he's the mayor of Harbor, Maine, Chapels Cove. They are working with three other towns, Avondale, Colliers, and Conception Harbor, and they're looking at how they can potentially save on some costs. So now they're thinking about collapsing their waste management contract. It could save just the community of Harbor, Maine, Chapels Cove, $125,000 over five years. So if the towns are using different contractors, paying a different rate, as opposed to looking at a single contractor, maybe a longer-term contract, maybe find some savings, these are pragmatic things where you can see the collaboration suggested by regionalization without losing your identity, without collapsing your government in full. It's certainly a nice first step because if the ultimate outcome here is you save some money, then there's no downside there. So what they're trying to attempt with Lab City Wabush with the Mike Adams Recreational Complex and what they're doing with the, the Conception Harbor model and all the communities involved, if at the end of it, you're still who you are, you're still born and raised in that town, 
You don't lose any of your identity, but all of a sudden, what you were paying a little bit too much for possibly, now there's some cost savings achieved because cooperation. So I think that is how we can possibly start thinking and talking about regionalization without going to the end of the conversation before we even start the conversation, especially the residents of the 174 local service districts. They weren't involved in the onset in the working groups at MNL. They didn't really have enough detail to give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down, but the hesitation is real. So let's talk about how it could work even in baby steps as the government and the owners the onus falls back on the minister to help fill in some of the blanks and answer some of the real looming questions that are out there. So I think that's a really good example of maybe being able to figure this out without going all the way to the end before we even start the chat. Let's go to the courts. So the trial of an unnamed lawyer for historic sexual assaults, this lawyer remains anonymous. So there's a publication ban, and he's going all the way, or she, I guess it's a he, going all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, even though we don't know that the country's highest court is even going to take up the case. So allegedly committed sexual assault, sexually touched, and assaulted a girl under the age of 14 in 2002. She was 12 at the time. Then two additional charges from incidents sometime in 2012, 2013. The same female. So publication bans are absolutely commonplace in sexual assault trials, but generally for the victim, not for the alleged perpetrator. And then you go a little further and, you know, just try to read on some of the comments being offered. The lawyer had argued that revealing his identity would deprive him of the presumption of innocence, negatively affect his reputation, and undermine his dignity. If indeed that's true, then does that extend to everybody? Because we know what human nature means when we look at the quote-unquote perp walk. Someone has been charged, and in so many people's minds, I think even just subconsciously, that person must be guilty. Why? Because I see them in handcuffs, being paraded in and out of a courtroom for their initial appearance or during their trial. So if presumption of innocence is lost for this gentleman, this man, does that mean it's lost for all? It's a tough argument to make if you don't support the publication ban for all involved in the courts until you make your way through the court proceedings and you're found guilty. Then we get to know who you are. Or, should this be the way, we get to know everybody's name, including this lawyer. Look, if you have the time, the patience, the legal horsepower to do what they've done, and I'm not saying he did anything wrong because a, a judge agreed with him and the publication ban remains in place, but it's hard to have a double or triple or quadruple standard inside that world. What do you think? We can talk about it today. How are we doing on the phone there, David? Okay, let's get it rolling here a little bit. Oh, I told my uh, buddy Ronnie Butler that I'd give some promotion to the pending flipper dinner at Pleasantville Legion. Happens tomorrow, Branch 56. The dinner's at 6.30. Doors open at 5.30. There's also roast beef dinner available if flipper is not your bag. It's going to be live music. Tickets are $25. They're being pre-sold. You can purchase them at the bar or call the Legion, 753-9820 to set yourself up for a flipper dinner or a roast beef dinner. There you go, Ronnie. Done. Today begins, or I guess yesterday, begins Mental Health Awareness Month. We can't talk enough about it. And yes, the pandemic has really shone even a brighter light on what mental health, mental wellness, and mental illness, all three different things, what they look like and the realities facing people across the, problem, across the country and their families and their friends and their coworkers. 
We've had some advocates come on the program and really quite frankly talk about their experiences. We know the shortcomings for access to long-term mental health care. We know the gaps between rural and urban, the wait lists that people find themselves on. There have been some organizations, whether it be Wellness Together and the Jacob Patterson Memorial Foundation and others, who have really stepped in to try to do their level best. Governments are aware, obviously, there's a newly minted federal minister of mental health. That gives us the optic attention to it, but we need to do more. And the governments need to do more, but we all play a role. And some of the things that have been quite helpful and beneficial, I would suggest to many, is the willingness for people to talk about it openly. It's not for me to tell you what you should do with your own personal circumstances, but I've heard many stories from people who, when they hear on this program or elsewhere, people talking about it, it gives them the, the hope and optimism that some of what they thought might be the worry about being stigmatized has been reduced. So it's a good first step. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it can make life easier for people who know that if I do need help, I can find some help. I don't need to be embarrassed and hide in the shadows. My family needn't be embarrassed of me or for me because one in five Canadians at the bare minimum is dealing with a mental wellness, illness, or health issue. So as you know, this program is a place that we will talk about it, and we hope that you will consider it. From any angle, it can be criticism associated with the lack of access to long-term health care in particular, or it can be what understanding, embracing your own circumstance, what that's meant for your long-term wellness and what it's meant for your family, and however you'd like to tackle the concerns, let's do it. And not just the month of May, which is, of course, Mental Health Awareness Month, but all the time. And we can include addictions inside that envelope because in many circumstances, they go hand in glove. So let's have that conversation if you are so inclined. And the theme this year is this is empathy. There's actually going to be a Zoom Facebook presentation this afternoon beginning at 1.30. Island time, I believe, is the number. So let's do that. Okay, let's get a tune going. Try to lighten the load one more time before we come back and speak with you. It was the day in 1967 that the Hollies went into the studio. And generally, to put something on tape, it takes a few takes. It requires a few takes. But the Hollies laid down carry-on in just two takes. And one of the beneficiaries of. When we come back, we'll talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Billy, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Very how are you? What? I'm doing okay this morning. Thanks. How are you? Uh... You know me, but I, I, I'm going to have to confess uh, up by... My name is not Billy. You'll know me as Casimir Giovanni. Your old buddy, Casper. And the reason why I use Billy Skinner was because I heard that I was barred from the open line for one year, and I figured, you know, my probation period must be up now. Well, Patty, yeah. Well, hold on. Just one second, Casper. That's the first I've ever heard of it, and uh, I've known you for decades. You could have always reached out to me uh, personally to see what was happening, but you're welcome on the show. I have no idea about the, the this so-called ban, but welcome this morning. What's on your uh, mind? It's just me being, uh, being, uh, just being funny, boy. And you know what? Just what you just said there, right there, like you can reach out to me, like personally, whatever, you know, know me and everything. Someone mentioned that to me, but... No, the reason why I'm calling by and I'm not going to be funny or try to, you know, resurrect all wounds or anything, but I end up taking a walk down, uh, like, uh, I'm living here uh, by the village here, so I left uh, here by the village and I walked down to Elizabeth Avenue to 
lot of the DD Bank, you know, bad enough being barred up for the last couple of years, but I I ended up going to the DD Bank and I said, you know what, tag it, I'm going to cut across over to Bay Road and go to Tim Hortons and, you know, where the old Canadian tower used to be and everything. So instead of cutting across and going up towards Greens and everything up towards that area where the lights were too wide, I decided to take a left and go up behind the Canadian tower. Well, it's you know, it's a furniture place now or something like that. Anyway. Yeah, Leon's and Piatto yeah, and stuff, yeah. And, like, just something that's caught my eye. If you were driving by, you know what, you probably wouldn't pay no mind to it, but just, I don't know, I just, I'm just saying, like, uh, like I don't know if, it, if, if people, like, would agree with me or disagree with me, and that's, that's the whole idea of phoning into you and getting a, getting a point across. Not about a point, but I'm walking up, you know, past the Leon's and everything, and, I have I turn down and the first thing I see before I make that race is Mount Cashel Road. So just pause for a second. Yes, Mount Cashel Road. And there's a lot of history with good memories and bad memories. But like I said, if you were driving by, you would never notice. And if you didn't know, if you weren't from here and we are corner boys, you know that, Ray Petty. Mm-hmm. You know the history and everything. So I just like. Just, you know, just to bring up a point, like, why should people need to be reminded? Even to the people, like, it doesn't matter for people like me or around the city, but to people who live on that road, and, and like, as soon as you hit the top of that road, like, if you look straight on down, the first thing you're seeing is O-B-E-Y. That's the thought of Sobe. So, Mountcastle Road leads you to something that probably people would never want to talk about anymore, and... It's 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 a part of our history. I'm not trying to change it, but maybe a call out to the city. Can we call it Mount Road, not Mount Soil, not Mount Royal? But can we like would would well, I don't know. Like I'm going to stop now, Patty. Okay, well, Casper, it's an interesting thought. There's a couple of remnants of the orphanage that are still around that could very easily go away, uh, and I know where you're coming from. For, I live in the area. Number one. And I've had great lifelong friends that lived on Mount Cashel Road. And, you know, in the news right now is the fact that the, the Roman Catholic Church, or the Archdiocese of St. John's, has, you know, filed for bankruptcy protection. And there's some debate going on in the courts now about whether it belongs with the Company's Credit Arrangement Act or continues on with the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. That's beside the point. But, you know, this is a deep, dark black mark on our history. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably went to school with some guys who were victims of the abuse at the hands of the brothers over at Mount Cashel. I know I did for sure at Pius 10th. Can I just say, uh, well, you just, what you just said, like, not, not, not trying to be funny or anything, but, like, you know, we grew up in the 80s, Patty. Like, I went to Holy Cross and St. Pat's. You went to St. Pat's or probably Rutter and Denver Race. We were all in that one centerpiece, but all jokes aside, I'm going to tell you something right now, Patty, and I'm being honest as a shores, like I said. When I see the boys pull up, like, I was at, at Holy Cross, like, I had to walk from Cabin Street, man, to to Holy Cross because my mother knew that all the boys from Cavistry went to St. Pat's. So I went to Ricketts Road and I wore my Dominion bags two times in my shoes and everything. And then when I see the young men pull up about 10 or 15 of them that were from the orphanage and I had a couple of good buddies that were there showing up with the, the brand name. And you know, Patty, you know, back in the day, Levi's cords were the, were the shit, right? You know what I'm saying? I told you that's the only curse yeah, word. Yeah, let's, don't use it again though, Casper. No, all right. No problem, Patty. I'm sorry about that, but when the boys get out and everything, you know, you see them with all the new stuff and everything. But when you think about it today, like, I was probably 14 then, and now I'm 51. So when I think about everything that's gone on, I'm not 
I'm not bringing up about what the Roman Catholic Church or anything do. This is a city thing, and maybe if Mr. Breen, the mayor himself, or, or somebody that's listening, but we'll probably, you know what, it makes a good point. We're not talking about about well, why be reminded of it. And, and, you know, a lot of good people, like you said, you grew up with them, you know people from that area and this and that, but at the end of the day, when you see that sign, and if you look down, it does. there's no remnants of it, but I can remember a mustard and, and, and a red color building with and stuff like that. And one of them other things that you talk about, like remembrance of where Mount Cancho and everything used to be, is them two pillars with that, that Christian butter yeah. cross that we call it boy. We used to go in there when we were in school, you know, ball hockey, swimming, that kind of stuff, and never had an inkling about what was going on when we weren't there with our watchful eyes. And, you know, I think about the boys who would be sitting in the class with us and then to learn years later that they were being abused the way they were is just horrific. Uh, and I, I actually think about it every now and then, especially since it's back in the news now regarding selling of church assets and what have you. Casper, very quick before I have to go, how are you doing personally? Uh, I'm doing pretty good, Patty. Boy, uh, you know, uh, I take everything day by day. By every day I wake up as a blessing. Boy, you know, I did serve me country, which goes there for 18 years and being from where I came from, and you know me, and I know you, and you know, it's, it's a different time and a different era, whatever it was. Yeah. I just, uh, one thing I can say before I go is that uh, I just want to ask you personally, you know, you being a lot, like a professional, and you're a lot more, a lot more up to date, whatever it is going on, but I just wondering, like, you know, before I hang up the phone, you know, my ADHD and my PTSD from being with the Paris Search and Rescue and that, but I don't, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't wander. And I, when I look at that stuff, I look in the rear view. But you being a professional, did I bring up a good point at all? Because I could have phoned up and been full and said, hey, I'm Denny Skinner. You know me, Patty. But I just wonder, like, is it, like, could the city, like, even just think about? I mean, well, they can. The city has all the ability to do things like that. I don't know if it's ever been considered or would be considered. But I'm sure you're not the only person that when you see that road sign, it's hard to think about much beyond what happened at the orphanage. And whether that's for right or wrong, maybe it's because I was close to that I knew some of the boys. But uh, listen, Casper, I'm glad you, you called. I hope you're doing okay. And you know how to reach me personally if you ever need to. Uh, you know, same thing goes for our, our old buddies, boy, from back in those days. You know, Bish and CC and Shiner and all the boys. So, yeah, stay in touch, man. Listen, before you go, Patty, can I just add, can I just tell you one clean joke, and it's going to be very quick. It's like a Tetley T conundrum. Very quick. I very fast, I'll say. So, here, Patty, here's the joke. When a witch went to school, what was her favorite subject before Halloween? I don't know. Spelling. Oh, I put a spell on you, Patty. Thanks a lot, Casper. Have a good day, my friend. Take care, man. All right, bye-bye. Uh, will I take a break and come back for Leo or take Leo now? All right, let's go to line number two. Leo, you're on the air. Take care, man. Right, oh, boy. Uh, will I take a break and come back? Leo. <laughs> Leo, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Penny. And as a veteran, you know to turn down your radio. Leo. <laughs> Please. Oh, good morning, Penny. And as a veteran, you know to turn down your radio. Buzz, oh, you ready to go, Leo? I am, yeah. Okay, yep. fire. Uh, no, I, I was just 
I was listening to Jerry Byrne the other day, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around what he's getting on with, how he thinks, you know. About what? Well, he mentioned something we'll see, and I sort of missed it there, but they were going to create 1,200 jobs, and he was sort of happy about that. I guess he would be, and everybody would be happy about it. I was wondering where in the hell is he going to get the people to fill them? What jobs are we talking about in particular, I'm sorry? It was CN. It was something to do with CN, I think. CN was upgrading or something like that, and it was going to it was going to create 1,200 jobs anyway, or there was a chance of it. No, was that a conversation you had with me? Yeah, yeah. So we talked about a couple of things uh, inside there. A lot of it was about uh, immigration, but there was yeah. also some uh, plans inside of agriculture, I think. Is that what, maybe what you're talking about? Probably so. Probably so. Yeah, probably so. Might not be seeing. I sort of missed it, eh? This is, but uh, uh, <laughs> I was just wondering, because not too long ago they had a, they had a, pro, a, a piece there on, uh, on the news. Uh, it was, they had to bring in 15 or 20 uh, people from Philippines to fill uh, to fill jobs there in the fish plant or in the fish plant actually on the east coast. Yep. So I'll tell you one thing. I don't know myself sometimes. I wonder about it. Because you they, uh, it's, it's, it's unreal. I mean, say, you mean to tell me that we've got to go around Newfoundland, you can't find 15 or 20 people, able-bodied people, go to work in, in, in a fish plant? Well, it's not the first year that it's happened either. And mm-hmm. it is becoming difficult. Look, there's a labor shortage in Canada. It might not feel like it here, but there absolutely is a labor shortage in this country. Yeah. We've got to figure out where people are, whether they're, why they're not participating in the workforce. Because if it's like the precarious very few weeks that you might get in the plant, and how it might jeopardize some of the programs around, for instance, your employment insurance. That's some things that people are battling with. You know, it's becoming less and less enticing for especially younger workers to want to make a life working in the seasonal fish plant uh, operation. So, yeah, I mean, I know one company in particular had to do it a couple of years ago, and they were quite clear. They went around their community for weeks trying to fill up the roster, and they couldn't. So, I mean, it's not like they're going to drop their, their business because they can't fill it up with locals. But I think there's, there's bigger questions to be asked about that. I don't know, I panic myself. I, I I just got a feeling if you can't find 15 or 20 people to go to work in all over Newfoundland, Bay, St. George and Bay of Islands and all all these places, I don't think we got a labor problem. I think we got a lazy problem. There's a bit of that. Yes, a bit of that too. But anyway, before I go, I, I never got that one on Jerry, just same. But before I go, I I got to put this one in. This lady that phones in all the time is probably a different thing, but she phones in for the Sierra Club. And uh, apparently now if we go offshore and I'm bringing some offshore oil, we're going to cost forest fires and people's debt and all this crap. Well, I had her on the program. She was actually quite reasonable. Actually, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, the, the ads are pretty much over the top. But yeah. that's, I mean, I don't know why anybody would be surprised. The Sierra Club stance on these types of things is really quite clear. So is it too much to say it's going to cause forest fires, we're going to burn the place down? It might be rhetoric tr- uh, trying to drive home a point, but I think there's a lot of that on the go these days. The buzzwords and the little stoking of fear, uh, the nudge of uh, concern or worry is how many organizations operate. So I heard the 
ads. I'm like, eh. And, but the lady, the representative, her, Jennifer, I can't remember her last name at this moment in time, but she was on the show. She made her point. She was uh, reasonable. Yeah, I, and off we went. I listen to her all the time, and I, and, and I, I find it kind of hypocritical because if she wants to kick up a racket about, uh, about climate change and whatever, she wants to go over there and get, a help, get up against Putin and tell him to stop dropping bombs and missiles and this and and, and uh, Ukraine because he's casting more uh, more uh, doing more damage. But Leo, in fairness, she's not an international diplomat. No, she's I a spokesperson that, for I mean, the Sierra Club. Yeah, the Sierra Club is or whatever. They're all over the damn place. Well, let them go to Russia and have we get up against Putin and tell him he's casting more damage to the to the climate in in one day than we're going to cost in five years. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but... Uh, anyway. <laughs> anyway, Leo, appreciate the time this morning. Yes, boy. Take it easy. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah. Well, we did indeed mention the fact that May is indeed Mental Health Awareness Month. Join us uh, after this break is Dr. Janine Hubbard. She's the president of the Association of Psychologists, Newfoundland Labrador. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Well, Dr. Janine Hubbard is a pediatric child and adolescent psychologist. She's also the president and communications director at APNL, and she joins us on line number 10. Good morning, Dr. Hubbard. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I don't know if this is the right thing to say or the right way to put it, but happy Mental Health Awareness Month. <laughs> well, at this point, you know what? I think that's appropriate because the goal of mental health awareness has that, there's that key word right there. It's increasing awareness. And anytime, anything we can do, and your show has been amazing at helping a number of organizations do this, the more we can get people talking about mental health, the more we can educate people about mental health, and the more we can decrease the stigma. Uh, those are all such essential items um, because, I mean, for so many years, it was like back in the day when you whispered the C word, uh, you know, when someone was diagnosed with cancer. We came a long way with that, and we're getting there with uh, discussing mental health. I don't know if this makes any sense. It does my mind. I'll just throw it out there. You know, there's always going to be, quote-unquote, myths surrounding mental yep. health and who people are that are struggling with their mental illnesses. And, you know, the fact that someone might be diagnosed as a schizophrenic is dangerous or things like that. What are some myths that you think would be helpful if we break them? Oh, my goodness. Um, and again, um, you know, media, like movies and TV, haven't always done a great job of portraying, you know, a lot of conditions. But I think it's important to remind people, one in five of us will experience a mental health condition at some point in our lives. That means everyone everyone who's listening has people in their lives who, to whom it will affect in varying degrees uh, at different points in the life. It could be something like uh, relatively time-limited if treated appropriately, say like postpartum depression, or yes, it could be a lifelong condition. It could be ADHD, it could be bipolar, it could be schizophrenia. You're quite right. Um, the good news that we know, and again, doesn't get discussed enough, is that there are treatments available for all of these conditions. Um, now, it's a question of getting the right treatment, the right time, the right people, the right intensity. That piece is important. Um, but that's also why we just have to keep talking about it. Uh, and we're happy to do it here on this show. You know, I think it's important that advocates like Christy and others will mm -hmm. make their weekly appearance and talk about the need to increase access to long-term health care. We absolutely have to paint the picture of where we're falling down on the job or the shortcomings. But it also always reminds me of a, a comment made by my friend 
friend Vince Withers at the Eating Disorder Foundation. Mm -hmm. We have to balance the need to highlight the shortcomings by also being wary of painting a picture where people will think, well, it's useless. I'm not going to yeah. try to get help because it's not there. I really struggle with that balance because we need to see uh, things improve. But if we continually say, can't get any help, well, then what happens to the person who listens and says, well, I'm not going to go through the battles with my family and my friends to acknowledge and to tell them that I'm struggling because there's no help available. I'm just going to toil in darkness. Oh, I struggle with the same thing because uh, one part of my role within APNL is to advocate um, the role of psychologists, but also to highlight when either uh, we're not being used effectively or we have shortages or, you know, there are issues getting access to psychology. And I never want people to hear that message and think, oh, well, there's just no point. Really, the reason we're having to bring it up is because if there are those shortages, if there are those issues, unless people are talking about it and unless they're seeking out services and saying, I think it's important to see a psychologist, um, then government and the powers that be will simply say, oh, no, we don't need psychology. Uh, look, nobody's, you know, nobody's asking for it specifically. Um, so it, it really is a double-edged sword. You are absolutely right. I know we have a shortage of psychologists, and I guess we can say that with every healthcare professional in all the disciplines right across the full gamut. But it's not just the absence of one psychologist. It's also the mentorship and training and the different areas that they work inside of healthcare. Because it's not just you go into a psychologist's office for one reason. They work with all kinds of different people in different parts of the province and industry and otherwise. Yep. Give us the status of where we are with the number of vacancies. Oh, it's really frightening. Um, and this was starting to happen even pre-pandemic, uh, but certainly has escalated throughout the pandemic. Uh, within our public sector, so we're talking healthcare, school psychology, post-secondary psychology, we are uh, averaging about 50% vacancy rates. Some areas of the province, it's as high as 75, 80%. Um, we have had a mass exodus like we've never seen in the past over the last five to seven years of people leaving the public sector. And what that has done is created, well, a number of issues. Um, you would think, okay, well, that's great. Then we just have more people uh, private. So if you happen to have the funds to see people privately, that then there should be lots of availability. There isn't. Because of the huge shortage within the public sector, that means that people who are working privately are dealing with more complicated issues, lengthier uh, treatment uh, issues, or ones where... Um, you know, um, it just means their caseloads are filling up with uh, cases that in the past were actually far better suited for the public system. Private is great for short term. Uh, private is great for really motivated, you know, here's my issue I want to work on. Um, six, eight sessions. In some cases, uh, things like OCD, maybe it's, you know, 12 to 20 sessions. Um, but it's kind of a unique thing and it can address and that takes the pressure off of the public system. Now we've got the opposite happening. The other issue that we're really concerned about is with this mass exodus, 
um, we're losing our mentors. We're losing our teachers. Psychologists, much like med students, um, and for those who aren't aware, our training is very comparable to someone going through a specialist medical degree. So when we have grad students, they do pla- they do clinical placements. Mm-hmm. When we have uh, residents, they do clinical placements. And then our early career psychologists actually spend some time under supervision and mentorship. Um, and if we don't have those mid-career to senior career psychologists available to provide that supervision, we can't hire anybody new. Um, and we can't train the students. And then we start to see the, the risk of the whole system collapsing in terms of training. The talk about the system has been really keenly focused on, for obvious reasons, uh, lately or recently. We talk about collaborative care clinics mm. and primary health care teams. You know, I don't know if I've seen much in the way of reference to where psychologists play a role inside of those care teams. Because if I went to the clinic on Monday Pond Road, there was a social worker, a pharmacist, an RN, an MP, a GP, but no psychologist. Maybe some of what I needed is still not being attended to. What role can the psychologist play in the primary health care team? We've been advocating to have psychologists in primary health care teams since 2017, um, when the first uh, federal money that was tied to mental health services was being introduced. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, it's seems to have fallen on deaf ears. We know this has been implemented in Ontario. It's currently being rolled out in BC. I'll be honest, in Ontario, it's actually one of the, those are some of the highest paid public sector positions, and they provide autonomy and respect um, and a really interesting, rapidly changing uh, work environment where some of it's consultations, some of it's assessment, some of it's interventions, some of it's then referring over to specialists, but it's a lot more preventative work. It's a lot more early um, identification. And again, I mean, we're also really well trained in working in collaborative teams. And so I have yet to understand why the folks here haven't expressed an interest in having psychologists included in those teams. We'd make a great addition. My need to potentially see a a psychologist can be brought upon by another mental, or pardon me, medical diagnosis. Absolutely. So it just kind of feels like they belong in the same conversation well, and under and the we same have, roof. I mean, we have huge n- amounts of research that support things like if you were receiving uh, psychological interventions, say, for chronic diseases, things like diabetes management, things like uh, cardiac uh, issues, things like uh, cancer treatment, it reduces the cost on the system. Uh, let me use diabetes for an example. Um, most patients will tell you they don't need more education. What they need is help in altering behaviors. They need help with motivation. They need help um, with the emotional side of coping with uh, a chronic disease like that. And so if you get better uh, adherence and compliance to the medical treatment early, that prevents all those medical complications down the road that cost the system much more money. Dr. Hubbard, always great to have you on the program. We appreciate when you make time for us, and thank you very much. Oh, again, Patty, thank you so much for all the attention you give to this. Take good care. Stay in touch. All right. Bye. Dr. Janine Hubbard is a child and adolescent psychologist and also the president and communication director at the Association of Psychologists, Newfoundland and Labrador. Appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Wait times, old age security, some of the comments I made in the preamble about privacy bans. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, John. How about you? Oh, I'm doing okay. Well, I have uh, due to that old uh, fiasco from Muscar Falls, sir. We're doing as good as we can because, I mean, you know, the flood season is starting again now. So, but anyway, 
anyway, that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about old age, old age pension today. Uh, I mean, you know, like it's utterly ridiculous what they're doing to the old age people, old people here, and in, in, well, not not only Newfoundland, not Bush, Bush, it's all over Canada. But you know, like our old age pension, all we get is uh, six hundred and forty-eight dollars and sixty-seven cents a month on old age pension. I mean, you know, with the cost of living gone up so high in the last few years, I mean, you think they, uh, you think it's about time that they they revisited that and and uh, you know, up up the old age security or old age pension a little bit more than what it is. How could a person live on $649, $648.67 a month? I mean, it's utterly ridiculous. I mean, I know this has been brought up before quite a few times and everything, but there's just, just nothing done, nothing being done. So I just wanted to put it out there. You know, let, let's, let's get out there, Lord, all the seniors and all the old people, and even the, even the, the, the younger people, the younger generation, I mean, they're going to get old, too. I mean, they're going to be getting into their 65, 67, whatever, the old age pension now, and they're going to be, uh, they're going to be needing this after a while. I mean, you know, like, why keep us in poverty? I don't, I don't understand it. Okay, lot to it. So, a couple of things. Is not every senior is in the same predicament, right? I mean, some seniors may indeed have their CPP and old age security, don't qualify for the guaranteed income supplement because they make too much money, might have a nice fat pension from their employed years, may indeed own their own home, have done well with their investments. That's where it becomes tricky because not every senior is the same. So boiling it down to who needs additional supports, just like if we're talking about for a home heat rebate or something, we've got to have plans that make sense to increase money for those who need it and not for those who don't. And some of that has, you know, been very uh, well understood when we talk about who got the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. We gave it to everybody when not everybody needed it. So I get where you're coming from. And old age security, I don't know if there's people that are really uh, aware of what's happening, but at this moment in time, you have to be 65 and older. Canadian resident for 10 years, da 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 da, da. But That's right. starting That's next right. year... Uh, April 1st of 2023, the eligibility age for old age security and guaranteed income supplement is going to be gradually increased from 65 to 67 years of age, fully implemented by January 2029. So that's a change that I'm not so sure many people realize is coming. No, it's coming. And and it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, okay, they got the, they got the old age supplement. There's old age supplement. If you get old age supplements, because I mean, you got to be, be below poverty, below poverty line to get old age supplement, and it's three hundred and ten fifty nine a month, which gives you nine hundred and fifty nine twenty six a month. Uh, how could people live on it? I mean, I know it's like uh, uh, what what it is. It's forcing older the older generation to go to work, which is taking jobs. Like everybody's saying, oh, we. We need job. We need job. But just taking jobs away from the younger generations because we were we're a force into going back to work. It's forcing us to go back to work. How could that person live on a thousand dollars a month? I mean, that's that's that, that's what supplement. I mean, if you're not going to get a supplement, and then and then they're they're saying they're going to raise. Uh, uh, all the pension by 10%. Uh, if you're 75 years old and older, yeah. 
that's when that's going to come up. But I mean, ten percent even of that doesn't make sense. Not with the prices of what's going on now. Not with the prices of gas. Not with the prices of food. I mean, I I can't even. Uh, you you can't buy insurance. You you can't pay your electricity bill. You you know. And then for health reason, if you got if you're on medication, well, God help you, because the thing is, you won't be able to buy your medication or get any help at all. Because the thing is, you just can't afford it. You got to sit there and take it and just be like be willing to just be satisfied with what you are but you can't be satisfied because the thing is how could like I mean everybody's saying well there's people starving in the world well seniors here in Canada is starving too because the thing is I mean there's just not enough money there to help the seniors out I appreciate the call this morning John thank you very much sir no and I thank you sir take good care all right, bye-bye. Yeah, there's, and of course, OH Security is a different bag than Guaranteed Income Supplement, which is for those who are really bringing in so little money. So it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $19,100 before you even qualify for the GIS. I think that's the number. Uh, let's take a break. Appreciate the patience of both uh, David and Colin. We'll get to them after the news. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number three. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Mr. Dabbitt. Morning to you. To uh, continue on from uh, Friday and maybe... Uh, repeat some of the stuff that I said on Friday. The first thing I want to comment on is uh, Jerry Burns is our Minister of Immigration, right? He is. Okay. Yes. He was on on TV probably a week or so ago and he was bragging about what we intend to do for the immigrants I think from Ukraine how we're going to go over and pick them up and place them here and place them there. And that's very good, you know, uh, Mr. Daly. I'm a real supporter of charity, but charity begins at home, okay? Now, I had a good friend from Barbara City that ended up in health science. The leg bone pushed out by a tumor, and it broke in the hip socket. She was... uh, ready to go home to Labrador City, okay? But she couldn't go home on Christmas Eve. She couldn't go home on Christmas Day because the air ambulance had nobody to bring back once they dropped her off in Labrador City. Now, Mr. Daly, that's not good enough. But just, just for my understanding, what does that have to do with uh, Ukrainian immigrants? Well, so charity begins at home. If we can help the Ukrainians, it's certainly good as we can help our own. Yeah, I think we have but to try to do both. For instance, the Ukrainians, no, the way that... The you don't understand, sir. Oh, I see. Okay. My friend was just as important as the immigrants that are going to come into our country. I didn't say any different. And I have nothing how against the immigrants coming in, but I do think that we should support her. Like that lady could have been taken down to Labrador City and been with her family Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But she couldn't because the air ambulance, and I believe that's her policy, if you don't have a patient to bring back, you don't go down. Now, Mr. Mr. Uh, Daly? Mr. Burr, Grimes, or whatever his name, Burns. 
Jerry Burns. He diminished uh, immigration, okay? So maybe that's not his responsibility. But somebody has a responsibility to look after our own, okay? Now, enough said about that. Really what I called about was our elf in Newfoundland and probably right across Canada. My wife has a successful heart surgery in elf science. The 6th of December, she was supposed to see her family doctor here in Gander two weeks later. Today, I believe she got an appointment with her family doctor. Now, Monday, we were going to go to St. John's or Tuesday. She was out of her medication, okay? So she calls the, well, it was 381, that's the best all but ink. And she was told that the system was full to call back the next day, which was Tuesday. I wasn't satisfied with that. I called Mr. Small's office, and they were a great help. But it comes to the point that this was not a federal problem. This was a provincial problem. So she gave me the 811 number. So anyway, make a long story short, Tuesday, she was told that she would be called by maybe a doctor or a nurse practitioner. Seven o'clock, she was the evening. Now, Costco, I have all the good words for Costco. They had already given her a month's supply on her medication. That's all they're legally allowed to do. She couldn't do any more. So we were leaving St. John's on Wednesday. Now, I knew if we didn't get the medication before we left St. John's, it would be mailed out, and we would probably get it today or tomorrow. But Costco, again, they bent over backwards, and they gave her a six-day supply of her medication. Okay? Okay. When we arrived at Air and Gander around 7 o'clock Wednesday evening, we got a call from the nurse practitioner. Now, do you mean to tell me that we had to wait from Monday to Wednesday to have some doctor or some nurse practitioner to sign a a prescription, which they get paid for? We were almost three days before we got this thing settled. And to me, sir, that's not good enough. Was it just renewing a, a standing prescription? Pardon? Was it just renewing a standing prescription, not a new drug? No, sir. It was a regular prescription. Did you understand? I said Costco from January from December the sixth, she ran out of pills. Okay, so Costco was willing to give her a month supply or yeah, a month supply, which that's legal. But over and above that is not legal. They can't give her any more. She needed some doctor or some nurse practitioner to phone in and do this prescription. Right. Uh, I, I mean, I know you think I don't understand, but I think I do. Now, what, what do you mean you don't understand? I didn't. I, I'm pretty sure you're not listening, David. That's what's happening here. I said, I do understand. All I was going to say is that it would be helpful if it was renewing a standing prescription that we'd allow the pharmacist to do it. So you could have just walked into Costco or to shoppers or to wherever and have the pharmacist who you deal with, who knows who you are, understand the prescription history, and simply they renew it right there as opposed to needing to see a doctor, needing to talk to a nurse practitioner, 
Commissioner or whatever the case may be. That's the only point I was going to make. So uh, anyway, Pally, don't you understand that we can't do that? We have to depend on this eight one one emergency. Now, an emergency from Monday to Wednesday, man, you could be dead and buried. And, and the pharmacies are not allowed to do that. Which is what I said. It might be a great idea if they could, so you wouldn't have had to experience that delay, is the point well, I was that's, making. Maybe that's one of the things our health, the, the officials, Dr. Aggie or whoever is in charge, would work on. And Dr. Aggie's been in about two terms now, maybe three. And it hasn't changed. So what I'm saying, okay, is our health system here in Newfoundland, and I've been told right across Canada, we are in shambles. My wife went from the 16th of December until today, which is the 2nd of May, to see a family doctor. After coming through a successful triple bypass and you mean to say that she had to wait December January February March April and now we're into May and some physician her nurse practitioner in Newfoundland could not call Castle because we knew that once we came out of St. John's our pharmacy is Costco in St. John's, and they're excellent. But once the prescription was thrown in on Wednesday, it wouldn't come here again there until today. We all wish it was uh, more efficient. I wish your wife well in her continued recovery from her triple bypass. Thanks for the call, David. Thank you very much for your time, Patty. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take that break. When we come back, I made mention of the fact that there's, I guess, two different... <laughs> potential standards at play when we talk about privacy bans or publication bans. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number six. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Great. Thanks for asking. How about you? Doing good, thanks. Just wanted to uh, make some comments about a topic that you brought up in your preamble regarding a, a lawyer, a member of the bar here, who's charged with sexual assault and uh, He's applying now to the Supreme Court of Canada for a publication ban on releasing his name. Yep, and there's no indication whether or not the court's going to take it up. Yeah, you know, you never know what the Supreme Court is going to do. They have a very busy docket. They only hear about uh, 80 cases a year, I believe. And uh, I, I believe they only sit for about seven months of the year. So uh, it's got to be a pretty important case for them to take it on. But... Uh, you know, on its face, uh, the arguments that are that are being made or advanced uh, by this gentleman through his uh, legal counsel, I think at best are uh, rather specious. They they don't really hold any water, in my opinion. That uh, you know, it's going to somehow making his name public or putting it on the public record for everybody to see is somehow going to diminish or infringe upon his uh, presumption of innocence. Well, generally speaking, publication bans are associated with the victim, not the alleged perpetrator. It's kind of curious if you just read between the lines as to what I guess he's saying through his lawyer, is that it would uh, deprive him of his presumption of innocence. Let's start with that. If that's the case, then wouldn't that apply to everybody charged with everything? 
it would on its face, you would think. Right. So how an exemption could be granted for a standalone case, whether or not the person's a member of the bar or not, I'm not even sure what that has to do with anything. Because you and I have talked about this many times in the past. When so many people, based on their subconscious judgment of folks he sees someone in cuffs being let in and out of the courtrooms a lot of people automatically say that person's guilty so if this particular lawyer figures their presumption of innocence is lost with their name being put forward then by the common sense logic associated with that that would make it the same apply to everybody so i don't know if that argument really carries much weight it doesn't in my opinion um he is no different in the eyes of the law than uh Last week, there was a former NHL hockey player who was charged with impure driving in over 80. Um, and his case is now going through the courts. Uh, former Montreal Canadian. Yeah, and again, I saw uh, Pat Framden write an editorial about it this past yeah. weekend, I guess. You know, which do we want? Do we want his name kept out? And if so, then we want the source name kept out, or we want them both included. Because you cannot have it both ways. I guess she was being bombarded with uh, criticism that, you know, we're dragging someone through the mud, sensationalizing a charge. How come we don't hear this about others? We don't hear about others because they might not be household names and have any notoriety. You can look at the court docket and see everybody's name except for this lawyer. That's right. And uh, it has to be remembered that the people who, uh, you know, uh, are challenging Pam Frampton <clears throat> and others and saying that he's being dragged through the mud, uh, you know, uh, if his name is going to be released, uh, made public, uh, you have to realize that in our uh, Constitution, in the Charter of Rights of Freedoms, we have a constitutionally guaranteed right to freedom of the press. So the press are the eyes and ears of the general public, and they can uh, sit in on any court case uh, in this country and uh, subject to publication bans issued by the trial judge, and you know, like the name of the uh, complainant in the sexual assault case. Um, generally speaking, that uh, whatever happens in court can be reported on, right? Yeah. Uh, again, it's really trying to have it just an exemption offered for one particular person. And, you know, it requires some legal horsepower and time and money to bring something all the way to, as I I suppose this lawyer hopes, to the Supreme Court of Canada because 99% of people who are on the docket, they don't have that ability. They don't have the money, the resources to take it all the way to the the highest court in the land. So I don't know where this lands, of course, and whether or not the Supreme Court even hears the case, but it's a strange one. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it has to be remembered that uh, the Supreme Court of Canada, in a very famous case in 1986, uh, the Queen versus Oaks, and Oaks uh, set out the test for uh, limiting constitutional rights under Section 1 of the Charter. But the, also the court in that case uh, commented on the presumption of innocence. The presumption of innocence and reverse onus uh, was was uh, one of the main uh, points in in this case. Uh, there was a section under the Narcotics Control Act that uh, violated the presumption of innocence, and the court had to make a ruling on whether that was justified or not. And uh, it, without getting into that case now, but the the, the court said in that case that uh, the presumption of innocence is uh, is like a golden thread that that goes through uh, the criminal justice system in this country and that people are presumed innocent and are presumed to be law-abiding and decent uh, citizens until proven otherwise, right? And I'm paraphrasing here now just yeah. off the top of my head. But, you know, it, it's uh, when this case does go to court, whether it's a bench trial or jury trial, if it's a bench trial, the judge will just... Um, the judge already knows who this person is because this person is a member of the legal community. But if it is a jury trial, 
the jury will be instructed to disregard any uh, media reports or any uh, you know any stories on the internet or anything else that could prejudice this man's right to a fair trial. And the judge will instruct the jury that he is presumed innocent until the Crown proves him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt based on the evidence that they hear, that the judge allows them to hear in court, right? I know one thing uh, is that there are certainly some members of the legal community that are not pleased with this because now all of a sudden what we saw right away was the rumor mill kick in. And then all of a sudden, there's a few names flying around, and the person that has been named is not the person. So if I'm oh. if I'm falling prey to some of those rumors, I am furious. Yeah, really, it's uh, I, you know I, I don't know what to make of it. Really, there's there's very uh, very limited circumstances or sets of circumstances where courts will will um, not allow you know uh, uh, evidence or information that's brought forward in court to be made public. Uh, one one area that I can think of right off the top of my head would be national security cases, where uh, divulging the name of an informant in a case like that might uh, cause somebody to be injured or killed, you know, or may reveal sources and methods by RCMP and CSIS and how they gather information and things like that. Interesting story last week about the relationship and information sharing between CSIS and the RCMP and the, refus- the refusal by the RCMP to make some arrests based on national security because they didn't know what the arrests were for. Yeah. That was a really great story. That. Yeah. Theory, eh? yeah. So the RCMP, their national security people could show up on Patrick Daly's doorstep, arrest you, and then when you ask them why you're being arrested, which is your constitutional right, by the way, yeah. you have the right to be informed by the police of why you're being arrested and what you're being charged with, and they just shrug and say, we don't know. We were just told to arrest you. Which is why they refused. <laughs> yeah, that was a crazy story. Anyway, they should probably get their act together and share information because they're all bound by confidentiality on those fronts. So, That's right. you know, at least just give the cops the ability to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it. Yeah. Uh, Colin, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks, Patty. Take good Cheers. care. All right, bye-bye. Oh, no. Yeah, that was some story. So the spy agency, CSIS, they were asking the RCMP to make some arrests. And because the RCMP didn't know what the charges were, they said, not doing it. All right, let's keep going. Uh, line number five. Randall, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How you doing? Okay, you? I'm doing okay. Uh, I'm calling just to inform people. Uh, uh, if they're looking for places to rent in the general St. John's area this year, do not send money ahead of time. Uh, I had two teenagers last week against my advice. Send a $600 deposit to a place uh, that was advertised to rent for University in St. John's. And they can't get old to this person now. They were supposed to view it on Friday and of course, now the money is gone. The police have told uh, told them, oh, it's civil, it's not criminal. Uh, in my opinion, it's fraud, uh, and it should be investigated. Because two teenagers going to start university are out now $600. Yeah, I mean, there's no, a lot of buyer beware stuff out there. You know, it's a shame that we've arrived at a place where you almost have to consider just about everything a potential scam and do everything you can to protect yourself and your hard-earned money so you know play people trying to gobble up a rental because the you know sight unseen because i need to secure it and time is running short just always take that extra deep breath and second uh, look at it make sure that you're not doing something that, which may cost you your 600 bucks there's ways around it but i know why it happens that's for sure
Yeah, well, my son called me. I was in Alberta working, and I told him, do not send any money. And being 17, two of them, they decided they were doing it anyway. So, of course, I've heard of these situations before. It may not even be somebody in Newfoundland. They could have pulled somebody's picture, picture of a house off the Internet, put it on there. And that's what's going on because, as you know, for children going to university, it's hard to find places. Uh, They're expensive. And they lose $600 as two 17-year-olds. And, you know, I can't understand how the police can say it's a civil matter when – how do these kids be able to trace back where this money went and where these people are from? You know, I've seen cases where people have been charged with doing things like that before on the island and went to court and fined or jail sentences or whatever. So why is this not considered a criminal offense? I don't know, but my last comment would be, Sometimes if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And you should take every step possible to ensure that you're not falling for one of these relentless scammers. And they're around every single corner, digitally, on the phone, whatever the case might be. Randall, thanks for the heads up here this morning. Appreciate it. Actually, Patty, one last thing, if you've got just a minute. Uh, it's about the deputy mayor of Grand Bank. He's a close relative of mine, uh, Clayton Walsh, as you probably already passed away on Friday evening. I did hear uh, that. My condolences okay. to his family and friends. He, uh, he was a politician with the town of Grand Bank for 20 years. He also worked with Recreation Newfoundland and stuff and many, many boards. Uh, last Wednesday, I, I got to give you this story because people should know the type of person he was. But he just recently, they had a big rally in Marystown. He was up on a flatbed truck speaking about cuts to healthcare on the Bjorn Peninsula and things. I don't know if you saw that on the news. Anyway, last Wednesday, when the doctor came into his room in Clarenville and told him that there was nothing else they could do, and he, he his question was, so what do you mean, I'm dying? And she said, unfortunately, Mr. Walsh, yes, that's, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. So his daughter works at the Clarenville Hospital because she's a nurse, and uh, some of the management were going in to visit him before he left because he wanted to come home. And his question to one manager, he thought it was a manager like of Eastern Health. She was his daughter's manager. He said, how many bids have you got for people like me here in this hospital? And she said, four. He said, and they got four in Bjorn. He said, now, he said, the people up that way get just as sick as the people down this way. He said, so, he said, if they caught our hospital, he said, like they're saying, he said, what are they going to do? He said, are you going to build a piece on here? He said, what are they going to do with the people like me, he said. He was just told he's dying, and he was worried about the other people on the Bjorn Peninsula. Do you understand what I'm saying, Patty? I do. Sounds like a solid man. A very solid, very good man, Patty. Again, I'm really sorry for your loss, uh, Randall, but thank you very much. But I had to let the people know this is the type of person that we just lost. And it makes it even that much worse. Again, our deepest condolences to you, the rest of his family, and his friends, and I appreciate your time this morning, Randall. Thanks, Patty. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about collaborative care. 
and the NHL. And then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. I, I'm not going to use my name, but um, I, I'm a retired nurse practitioner for um, medical reasons, not because I didn't love my job. Um, but I worked in rural Newfoundland, and Patty, we had this community clinic stuff done years ago. Uh, like they're spending all this money and touting all these clinics, but you know, we were a, a small hospital in rural Newfoundland, and um, we shared we shared a dietitian with the other hospitals around the area around the loop. Um, we had meetings with the physician if we needed to. I, I was a nurse practitioner. I had meetings with the physician if I needed to about a patient. But I I had a diabetic nurse, and I was responsible for 45 residents in long-term care. Plus, I had my own patient. And she would she would go through the charts and, and tell me what, you know, what needed, she felt, needed to be adjusted and and it took a lot of time off me right we had um a, and now they've put a chronic disease on top of her her i say umbrella and um so now she doesn't have time to turn around but she was seeing patients outpatients she was taking care of the inpatients and and long term care we had um an RN that would would come to our meetings. We would invite the family to the meetings if we needed to. The physician came if he needed to. But we all got together. We had a pharmacist that came out from from uh, Gander that used to to do um, evaluations on the patient's medications and give us suggestions. And you don't have to have every single person in in one clinic do you know what i'm saying i do and you know we all talk together you know if i had a patient that i was having trouble with their with their insulin regulation you know i just i just meet her in the hall and say can i come in your office for a second you you know such and such yeah well this is what's going on with her sugars now and she'd say well the latest stuff is in, increase this or increase that or, or decrease this or you know we shared our patients and, and the f- physician was never left out of it if he had time to come to our meetings he did and we've been doing it for years and you know we didn't need to spend all this money to find out if it works it works it does work and and we all knew our long term patients we all knew our, our patients that were were hard to treat or had multiple issues and and I you know as a nurse practitioner I did my best but the rest of the staff did their best too and and we really did it good and here in St. John's you would think they would take a Sorry, I had brain surgery and I forget my words sometimes. Don't worry, uh, take your time. You would think they could take a, take a, a look at what we were doing, and Doctor Haggy knows who we all are, 
because he was out in rural and he knew it worked. And and we didn't have a full-time dietitian. No, we didn't have somebody click your fingers and there she is. But also, uh, I could call her if I had a real bad problem and and she she would call me back and we'd discuss it and then when we all got together again then you know she's she'd say how did that work out for you you know you don't have to have every single discipline in every single office we had a we had a um physiotherapist who used to come out and she had a physiotherapist assistant that lived in the area, so she worked with us, physiotherapy assistant, and the physiotherapist saw the patients she needed to see, the, you know, post-op, knees, hips, whatever it had to be, and she would leave instructions. The physiotherapist assistant would follow up with her and with the patient and, and come back to us and say, you know, this is doing good or it's not right, and so we'll wait for the the um, physiotherapist to come in again. You know, like what we could call her in the meantime. You don't you don't have to have fifty of each. You know, going around in every office, you can split them, and that's what we've done for years and years and years. Our our dietitian used to come to our hospital for three days, and she would sleep in upstairs where the doctors used to, the nurses and the doctors used to sleep years ago up in the attic. She'd sleep up there for the three days that she was there. And, you know, she she knew every single patient and, and the inpatients that we had, we did have inpatient rounds with everybody there. Um, and when it was long-term care, it was the same thing. I, I would go up and do rounds and, and whoever needed to be there, but every two months, we would have a family meeting with every discipline there in case the family had questions. And the doctor would be there. I would be there. The dietitian would be there. Everybody would be there. And if the family said, well, she's really not eating well, well the dietitian would say, well, what is it she ate when she was home? You know, or, or you know, whatever the problem was. You know, we figured out then. We didn't. We didn't need all this money thrown at us because we were doing it. You know. I think the the concept of a collaborative care clinic makes all the sense in the world. It does. Uh, it, it really does. Now, the real trick will be, as pointed out by the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association and the college, is you have to have new entrants, new healthcare workers into the system as opposed to simply move a family doctor from Mount Pearl to Monday, Monday Pond Road because then you know we've left behind a full patient roster maybe two three thousand people even though this new clinic might be able to see ten thousand people it's a good thing but we are just moving a doctor around if there was three new clinics and three new GPs were at the helm of those clinics fantastic and all the other private uh, subcontractors remained in place whether it be Mount Pearl Paradise CBS whatever that's ideal so when we get to a point where the staffing levels are new entrants into the system it's going to work it really is yeah. they're working out the kinks and they're trying to figure it out but it just makes sense doesn't it you know it's one stop shop if i need to see somebody but it might not be a family doctor i might no. just need to see an lpn or a nurse practitioner or yeah. a pharmacist or a social worker whatever the case may be if that's what happens when i get to the clinic as opposed to i go to the doctor's clinic i get referred on to someone else or i don't really need to see a gp i just have a very small uh, ailment that needs to be managed that's where the care clinic makes every bit of sense to me 
It does too, but what I'm saying is the way we worked, we kept a lot of work off the physician. The physician wasn't calculating sure. the insulin. The diabetic nurse who's trained to do that does that. You know, if if they got a long-term wound because because they're diabetic and they're not healing, well, the the wound care nurse would would be involved, and and then if it was not healing and and getting trouble, well, then we'd go to the physician about it. Like, there's ways that the the the, the, the physician can use his time as a physician and not be stuck with all this little minor stuff. Um, if if you got a stable patient that that needs a blood pressure uh, pills. Well, you can go in and see a nurse practitioner, and if there's a problem with the blood pressure or the, and, and, and you need to increase the prescription, well, you can let the family physician know or talk to the family physician about it, but you don't. You can free up the time. That's what I'm saying. Our, our, right. our doctors had more time to do the physician's role, and and you can you can split it up you can you can say well the dietitian is one week at this clinic and one week at that clinic and you know what i'm saying you don't yes i do you don't have to have them all there all the time you're in touch with each other you're a team you're talking to each other all the time and if something comes up you in between when you're needed you can you know discuss it over the phone and then the physician can do what they're trained to do and 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 Point. they have a better home life they're not they're not dragging you know dragging themselves home in the car every night exhausted because they had to see 50 people you know like they, we we understand they, point, point need, well made if they need to see a physician they will and the physicians know who they need to see do you understand me? Like, yes, I, I think we all do. Yeah, if, if your appointment is for one thing or another where you can simply see the RN or the LPN, then that's who you'll see as opposed to the GP. You're right. And that's the the upside as presented by, you know, ministers of health and health departments right across the country. This is not new. This is something that's been tried and true. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for the call. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Gus. That's Gary. You're on the air. Hello. Good morning, Patrick. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking, Gus. How are you doing? Not too bad. Um, Patrick, I, I was uh, intended to call you this morning anyway, but the, earlier today I was listening to um, uh, a caller mentioning the fact that um, there's a shortage of, uh, of labor in Newfoundland, and I think you went on to mention that it's a common thing across Canada. I was thought struck me that in the case of Newfoundland, um, you know, we have a whole generation of people who are uh, not familiar with the heyday of our Newfoundland fishery. In 1992, 30 years have passed and a whole generation have grown. Uh, and uh, at that time, 1992, the government of Canada, after uh, 50 years of dreadful mismanagement of our resource, which we passed over to them in 1949, they had, in spite of all the warnings, 
that the fishery was in, in decline from 1960. In 1992, a moratorium was declared, a moratorium on the ground fishery that had employed 30,000 people in Newfoundland, practically all of them on full time, and as a result of it, 80,000 of our population had to leave this province. And the thought struck me, you know, that a generation of Newfoundlanders have grown up since that. There's been no effort on the part of the Canadian government to restore the resource which they drastically, uh, you know, diminished and, 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 dis and destroyed. And, uh, you know, it's, it's no wonder today that uh, people are uh, not all that anxious to get into the fishery, except, of course, the crab fishery and the fishery itself, which is very lucrative and all the rest, but it's seasonal and so on. And it, has, it certainly in no way compares to what our fishery was from 19, uh, up until uh, the 80s and, and eventually, as I say, in spite of warning after warning, the closure and, and uh, apparently never to be reopened again. You know, to these people, uh, you, this new generation, maybe they don't understand what happened to us. But in 1949, we transferred management of our fisheries to Ottawa when we joined Confederation. And, you know, from that day, on that day in, in 1949, the Newfoundland fishery, under Newfoundland management for centuries, for centuries, had grown to the extent of one of being one of the largest and most diversified fisheries in the world. And when we joined Canada on that fateful day in 1949, we elevated the country, the country's fishery, which consisted of the Maritimes and Quebec and British Columbia. We elevated the country's fishery from 14th to sixth place in the world as a fish exporting nation. Our resource, as I said before, was the largest and most diversified fisheries in the world at the time. And, you know, Patty, what has happened to us? I don't know why. I don't know why uh, the people responsible, the government of Canada, and of course the, the successive governments in Newfoundland, have not recognized the fact that we had a, a, a gold mine, in a sense, in our fisheries. Because in 2020, the fisheries of 1960, 70, and 80, if valued today, would be huge. And employing one hell of a lot of people in Newfoundland and, and Labrador. And it's disgraceful, nothing short of what has happened to us.
Well, I don't think you'll get an argument on that front. The issue with the previous caller, of course, was whether or not it's of any interest for young people in particular to have that precarious seasonal opportunities inside the plant. You know, it's one thing when you have the value of uh, snow crab or what have you, and of course, crab itself might reach a billion dollars worth of landed value this year, but it's whether or not you can get people to work in the plant. I mean, the average age inside a fish plant is well understood. I think someone told me not long ago it was 57 or something like that. So if it's only a few weeks' work and whether it jeopardizes another well, program... I agree or, with you 100%. I'm saying that. I'm repeating it, but I'm, a rep- I'm saying it that it has resulted from the fact that we were totally abandoned by the, by the government of Canada, totally abandoned, and, and there's documented proof by the armful to prove it. At the same time, the, uh, the, the uh, Prime Minister of Canada in 1971 was uh, approached and told that the seriousness of the situation in the decline of the fishery because of foreign overfishing was beating the living hell out of it that something had to be done. And he made a commitment, a written commitment. I have a copy. Joe Smallwood was good enough before he passed on to send me a copy of the letter that was sent to him by Trudeau saying that they were going to extend jurisdiction to cover the continental shelf, shelf and stop the slaughter. He didn't. He reneged. He lied. And so did others over the years. They've abandoned the Newfoundland fishery, even though it made a huge contribution to the country's economy. And now, here we are in 2022, I can assure you that the government of Canada is spending oodles of money in the Maritimes and in Quebec in science, in, in, in uh, management of their resource, in rebuilding what stocks have failed. And here we are, for God's sake, with absolutely nothing left. All those people who had to leave this province, close to 15% of our population, because of the closure of the fishery, and they haven't one made one step in the direction of trying to rebuild it. And they were totally responsible for what happened. Where is the media? Where is the governments of Newfoundland, one after the other? What the hell? Why aren't they applying pressure on on the government of Canada to take its responsibility, which it uh, so gratefully took in 1949, and as I said before, elevated the country to uh, from 14th to 6th place in the world? It's ridiculous. And now we've reached the stage, for God's sake, Patty, where, we're, you know, things are happening under our noses, and, it, and what's left, and it's not the hell of a lot, but what is left, we've now uh, traded away to a foreign country, LA, one of the most, uh, I would say, in, uh, successful inshore operations in this province. I knew the uh, the builders of that organization very well. They worked their asses off and built it, and it's now in the hands of a foreign country called Denmark. Now we have, for God's sake, on the south coast, 
south of the south coast and a great supplier to the uh, fish plants from uh, the Bjorn Peninsula to Porabast, the uh, 3PS cardstock, mm-hmm. which traditionally, traditionally, again documented, was in the area of 75 to 80,000 tons yielded annually. Guess what? Last year, and not last year, again this year, the government of Canada, the government of Newfoundland, the union, and the industry came together as a group and agreed that the quota for 2022 will be 1,300 pounds. Can you believe it? Uh, Gus, as you know, I, I don't know as much about the industry as you do, but I certainly follow along what's been happening for the last 20, 30 years. And just simply because we've cleared 11 o'clock, we'll have to scoot off to the newsroom. Glad you made time for us this morning. Gus, thank you, sir. Well, I am, I'm not finished, but uh, I guess you have to run. But all I can say to you is the last rivet was put in this last uh, month when a local company catching a local uh, quota of fish, a common property resource owned by the people, is going to take it, put it in a storage room here, unfrozen, unprocessed, and then bring it to Nova Scotia, along with the jobs, to have it processed. And there isn't a word from the media, Patrick. Not a word. Well, I'm glad you brought your passion for the issue right here on the program again this morning, Gus. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break for those newscasts. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Oh, welcome back. Let's go. Where am I going, David? Line number six. Say good morning to uh, Cedric Matthew. He's the vice president and head of Canada at Toro. Good morning, Cedric. You're on the air. Hi, Teddy. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks. Give us some understanding about who led the charge to bring Toro to Newfoundland and Labrador starting on May the 17th. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we, we uh, just announced last week that uh, Toro will uh, launch on, on May 17th. We've already opened the, the platform uh, for uh, hosts, uh, so individual car owners around the province to list their cars on the platform. Uh, and so we're really excited that uh, peer-to-peer car sharing is officially coming to the province. Um, and so uh, it's, it's a great development, I think, for the population. How many clients or how many participants have you had in the app since you started in 2016? Uh, so, looking at Canada today, uh, Toro has been around for about six years. We uh, expanded uh, from three provinces to uh, five provinces now, and then uh, eight soon with the addition of uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, uh, PEI, and uh, New Brunswick soon. Uh, we have 1.2 million uh, people signed up to our app in Canada, and we have more than 53,000 cars listed uh, across the country in 350 cities. Uh, so, it's really a platform that a lot of Canadians have embraced, and uh, we're really excited for. Uh, the people of Newfoundland and Labrador to uh, finally be able to experience it. They call it the Airbnb, but for cars, what kind of protections are in place? So for people who are considering maybe they've got a vehicle that, you know, maybe I'm a teacher, the vehicle might be sitting around a little bit this summer, and I'm considering getting involved with Toro. What kind of protections do you put in place for screening guests or anything else that the motoring public might be worried about? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, as you can imagine, you know, as a transportation marketplace, safety is really at the heart of, of everything we do at Toro. And so we um, ensure safety for both hosts listing their cars on the platform and guests booking cars on the platform uh, by providing a, a very robust, uh, you know, auto insurance uh, coverage that really is standard with every trip booked on Turo. Um, so that covers the car for up to $2 million worth of liability coverage uh, and covers the full value of the car for physical damage with no deductible for the host. So as a host, listing car on Turo, uh, you know that uh, everything happening during a trip, uh, you're going to get covered and your personal insurance is not going to be affected by it. Uh, so I think this is really key in the uh, Turo experience. Uh, and on top of that, we, of course, uh, build trust on the platform by screening every guest uh, who sign up to the to the app to make sure that they can be trusted. Uh, we uh, make sure that cars that sit on the platform are uh, trustworthy as well. Uh, you know, uh, there are lots of criteria to be met. Um, you know, from the number of kilometers on the odometer that you know it should be below 200k. Uh, the the car needs to be less than 12 years old in good mechanical condition, and there's also a safety inspection requirement uh, for every car listed on the platform. So there are really lots of safeguards in place to make sure that everyone has a great experience and to make sure that uh, everyone just, uh, you know, has uh, trust in the platform and has a great experience using Toro. So you cover the relationship you have with economical insurance just based on the commission that you take. So no implication to my personal insurance or my pocketbook? Exactly. So we just uh, encourage everyone to let their own uh, personal insurance know because, uh, again, it's always up to the insurer to decide whether they are okay with you uh, participating in, in this new kind of type of car sharing uh, platform. Uh, but, you know, in every province that we operate in, uh, it's been working very well. You know, we've been doing this for six years now. We've had hundreds of thousands of trips on the platform, uh, and, and uh, everyone has been covered as intended. Uh, and so the, the idea is just to let your insurer know, and then uh, they'll make a note to it on their file. And then, you know, the moment you're going to give the keys to your car to, the, to your guest, then your car is going to be covered by the true provided insurance. Uh, and your personal insurance uh, should not be affected. Sometimes, with some people, they'll rent the car from one of the big national or multinational brands, and they'll drive it like they stole it. And so maybe they'll incur a speeding ticket or some other infraction. Is there a carte blanche set of rules when it comes to that? Because if someone rents my car and gets a couple of speeding tickets, what becomes of that ticket? Is it between me and my insurance company to deal with my premiums, or is there something in the arrangement with Toro that helps cover that concern? So uh, for any of these very rare uh, occurrences, uh, we uh, usually, you know, we have a, a customer support team that's uh, working 24-7 for the Canadian community uh, that's really dedicated to Canadian customers. Uh, and so we really just encourage uh, people to reach out to us. And then we would work with the host to, uh, you know, look at how to deal with, like, each of these kind of individual cases. Uh, we can look at things like transfer of liabilities and, and things like that to, to make sure that uh, your kind of personal file doesn't get affected by uh, any activity on Toronto. Another uh, consideration when we talk about rental cars is, for instance, on the mainland, there's a thing called a deadhead. So I rent the car on Jasper, Alberta. I drive to the airport in Edmonton. The, the company might pay me $100 to drive the car back and send a van lot of us in to bring back some rental cars. If I live in St. John's and my guest rents my car but is flying back to wherever they came from, say, for instance, Deer Lake, is there a return policy or is it between me and whoever wants to rent my car to ensure it's brought back to my door? 
Yeah, so um, I'm not going to lie, this is not the, the use case that uh, works the best with Turo. Uh, we're really looking at kind of end-to-end -end trips where usually you bring the car back where you uh, took it. Of course, you can always work with your host. Uh, if the host wants to accommodate you and, and it's fine kind of traveling and getting the car back, then it's always something that uh, you can do and arrange with the host directly. But usually, in general, uh, it, it's really uh, about kind of, you know taking a car somewhere and then bringing it back at the same place. Uh, so. Uh, and that's kind of the main use case on Toro. What's the uptake been from Newfoundlanders and Labradorians? I know it doesn't kick off officially until the 17th of this month, but how many people, or do we know how many people have reached out to Toro to say they're interested in renting their car? Yeah, well, you know, it, it's a bit early to tell. Uh, it's been less than a week since we announced that we're launching, but I'm um, also already happy to report uh, that, you know, already have seen hundreds of people, uh, you know, either start listing on, on the, the platform uh, and reach out to uh, the Toro team to uh, get this, their, the cars listed. Uh, so we think that takes going to be great. I think this is a great time for, uh, you know, the people of the province to embrace this new concept and, and really uh, capitalize on the boom in travel and the return of, of travel uh, in the province at a time when there are no uh, car rentals available almost uh, or uh, at a time where traditional car rental is very expensive. Uh, so we think it's a great opportunity for everyone here uh, and we're really uh, happy with the uptake so far, but I, I think this is just the beginning. I appreciate making time for the program this morning, Cedric. I know the hospital, hospitality tourism industry was really quite concerned with the number of bookings they saw cancelled because of the lack of availability with rental cars and or the associated costs. So this has been very helpful. Anything else you'd like to say to the listeners while we have you? Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Cedric Matthew, he's the Vice President Head of Canada at Toro. You interested? Let us know after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. David, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, Patty, I'm calling you from CCC, and uh, I want to uh, address this issue to the listeners. It had to do with the vehicle accident back in December, and I won't be mentioning any names. Uh, my granddaughter was driving a vehicle of her own, fully insured, and she's licensed and so on. On a highway between Goose Bay and Shehadi, there was a vehicle parked on the side of the road. There was another vehicle ahead of her, and that vehicle passed the vehicle cautiously, as she did as well. Anyway, after she passed the vehicle, she tail-ended the vehicle and her vehicle was rolled off. And I had to pay $2,000 for the impoundment, $2,000 for the impoundment after a few days being impounded. Plus I have to pay $100 to motorization to get that vehicle re re uh, released to the insurance. So when I spoke to my granddaughter, she said the person that she rear-ended had a suspended license. And she's the fault of that accident. And this is how much I spent on the vehicle accident and so on. And the RCMP came to my home uh, a few days later, and I questioned the, the same concerns. And they said, no, the person we spoke to had a driver's license. And the person they named, according to my, my granddaughter and her uh, uh, partner, uh, she said, no, he wasn't there. It was this person who was driving, and he was suspended. And the question that I'm raising is that if that suspended driver was driving the vehicle that my granddaughter rented, that vehicle shouldn't be on the road with a suspended driver. 
no, obviously it should not be on the road with a suspended driver. It becomes an extremely complicated issue, as far as I can understand. When we have, yeah, it is very complicated. Yeah, if you have an accident with someone who's uninsured. Because, curiously, this is the only province in the country where it's not mandatory coverage based on your accident benefits coverage. So if I'm in uh, Prince Edward Island getting into an accident or a collision, pardon me, with an uninsured driver, my own accident benefits coverage can cover, say, for instance, I get injured. In this province, it's not mandatory. So it's a really tricky issue in this province. Yeah, uh, I even had a surgeon come to my house and we spoke about it mentally. And I said, this is what happened. This is what my granddaughter disclosed to me and so on and so forth. And she said, regardless whether the driver ahead of her had a suspended license or no license, it's still your granddaughter's fault. I found that very, very strange. Yeah, it doesn't change fault. It just changes coverage. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, luckily, uh, her insurance is going to be covering everything. But uh, this is going to be outstand- outstanding with $2,100 of uh, uh, payments on the impoundment and uh, the release of the vehicle that I lend money to her to get her vehicle released to the insurance. It's amazing. It never ceases to amaze me how many people are willing to drive without a valid license and or insurance in their vehicle. You're asking for some enormous trouble. Yeah, that's right. Happens all the time. I, wanted, uh, I just wanted this to be uh, aired to the listeners and see if they had gone through the same uh, dilemma with their vehicles or issues on the island in Newfoundland, right? I bet you it's a more common a story than people realize. Mm-hmm. I just want to bring that attention to you, and I had tried to deal with this through the insurance and through the RCMP, and uh, with no luck, the RCMP are very adamant in saying that the person that drove the vehicle in question had a license, and the person they named was not there on the highway when this accident happened. It was another person who was driving the vehicle. Oh, okay. Again, even another layer of complexity. Uh, I appreciate the heads up and the time this morning, David. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number one. Uh, Sean, you're on the air. Yes, how are you this morning, Benny? I'm doing okay, thanks. How about you? Oh, not bad. Uh, you were talking about the uh, old age security measures uh, this morning. Uh, are there going to be changes next year? Well, uh, I'll tell you what. I may be in a position where I might have to correct myself here. Uh, I was working under the assumption that beginning next April there would be a gradual increase in eligibility from 65 to 67 years of age, full implementation by 2029. That might be that might be incorrect. <laughs> and if okay. so, which I'm trying to confirm, I will absolutely happily correct myself uh, on that because if the uh, the Harper government were talking about doing it, now if memory serves me, now that I've been prompted, in 2016 or 2017, I think the Liberals walked away from that particular plan. So I think it remains at 60. I've been really trying to confirm during the show, but of course, it's kind of busy when I'm on the air doing my thing. But yeah. I, I think I'm, I think I'm wrong, and if I'm wrong, I apologize, and I want to get the accurate information out there. Yeah, because when I heard it, I said, "Well, you know, that's 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 new to me. I, I never heard tell of that." You know. Yeah, there was it was proposed certainly, and the conservatives were talking about it a hundred percent, and the argument being made, and I don't know what people make of this, but when sixty-five was selected. And you know where the pensions first began? Germany. 
weirdly yeah. enough. So they selected 65. But that's decades ago. And the average life expectancy was far less than it is today. So people are working later in life, living longer. And so moving from 65 to 67, that was the argument being made by the government of the day back then. Now I think that the liberals see an absolute vote upside to roll it back to 65, where it's always been. But I think there's an actual argument to be made for an increase in age eligibility. But, yeah, again, so I'm wrong, and whoever sent me the information, they're right. Yeah, so it's still 65. It is today. Yes, sir, it is. And it will be 65 in the next couple of years or so. As far as we know now, unless the government changes hands and or they change their tune, 65 it is. Yeah, that legislation was proposed by the Conservatives, was it? It was. Uh, the yeah. Liberals rolled it back and said that they weren't going to make any adjustments. Okay, so it was like sort of like dead in the water. When, uh... As of now, yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, then. Thanks, Benny. Appreciate that. Thanks, Sean. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, yeah, look, so, look... If I blow it on any of these issues, because there's a lot of numbers and dates and stuff bouncing around in my uh, my poor old head, when I'm wrong, I'm just simply wrong. There's no way to run or hide from it, nor am I interested in doing that. The most important thing we're trying to accomplish is if there's these types of big questions impacting tens of thousands of millions of Canadians, we'd like to get it right. So when and if you hear me say something that is demonstrably not true. You know, some opinions, we'll all be able to debate those and everyone's able to have their own opinion. But factual issues like dates and times and that kind of stuff, let's just make sure that those listening get the right information, accurate information, whether it comes from me and or the contributions that you make to the program. That's all that matters to me, to be honest with you. It's going to be many, many times that I'll be wrong and I'm not afraid to admit it because that's just nature of the beast. Nobody's right all the time. So make sure as contributors, and I'm always really impressed that people take the time to send along some notes and uh, information because I really don't have the time or the wherewithal sometimes to Google doing live radio, talking with someone. But if you send me something that I need to consider and or to set the record straight, I'm happy to take it. Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Good morning, Brendan at Legend Tours. You're on the air. Oh, uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, thanks for uh, taking my call. Patty, before I mention what I want to mention, uh, this has been on my mind for quite a while. Uh, If you remember, about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, there was a man called in, if you remember, and he was talking about the possibility of pyramids being in central Newfoundland, that the Chinese were here, and there was a whole bunch of things that he mentioned. And I'm just wondering if you heard anything relative to that conversation after you spoke with him. Never. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you would think this day and age, something so extraordinarily fascinating, the Chinese relationship with the province and pyramids and the like, whether it be drone footage or someone physically walk up and touch it, because you would imagine that archaeologists and historians worldwide would be fascinated to be involved in that type of work. But no, the short answer is no. 
and again, I was fascinated with the conversation so much so that I recorded it. And uh, but I thought then I said, well, because I remember you yourself saying how that, that this was fascinating and this would change even world history. And uh, but anyway, I just wanted to ask you that um, the reason why I called is you probably know we, we have a building on Water Street, a retail building. And uh, I don't mind saying uh, over the past actually month, uh, we're, we are getting a lot of tourists here and uh, they're coming in daily and so on. There was this really nice couple here from Alberta just a few days ago. And of course, uh, they were shopping here in our building. And of course, they came back a second day and they shopped again. And really nice to talk to them. And of course, I'm the type of guy, people that know me, I love talking. And um, so we had great conversations talking about the place and so on. But what was what was really hurtful, and I took it really personally, on Saturday when they had made their purchases and we were talking, the gentleman looked at me and he said, you know, Brendan, he said it'd be great if people didn't throw their garbage out the window. And Patty, it just really floored me. I mean, I took it really personally. Of course, I wouldn't put a popsicle stick on the ground, but it's just the fact that I'm a Newfoundlander, and they're here from Alberta. Everything going perfectly, you know, so-called. And then the last comment he made before he left our building, that's exactly what he said. He said it'd be great, he said, if people didn't throw the garbage out through their window. And I just wanted to call to make it known to the public this sentiment from this couple that spent quite a bit of money, I'm sure, coming here, staying here, and so on. And I, I just, look, I, I just wanted to make it known. I, I know it's talked about quite a bit uh, on, on your uh, program, and rightfully so. But, you know, when, and I don't mind saying I am 39 years involved in tourism, 39. That is the first time anybody has ever said anything like that to me and i took it personally and i took it hard and again i know it wasn't my fault but again like yourself we are newfoundlanders and so look that's all i wanted to say patty I don't know if we factor it in quite enough. It sounds like a, a trivial conversation, but it's bigger than that. Whether it be pride of place, whether it be a tourist comes and their takeaways, I wish people wouldn't throw garbage out the windows or why that city is really dirty, really rotten. If I'm a potential traveler sitting in my living room in Calgary, my buddy comes back from a visit to this province and says the place is really dirty, that kind of makes me less incentivized to want to visit. So I think it's bigger than just, you know, the litter bugs out there. It has implications across the board. So I don't think it's a bad one to talk about. I just don't understand why we are so bad at that. You know, and I we're going to have to rely on neighborhood cleanups and like the city of Cornerbrook who does a good job thinking outside the box and incentivizing people to clean up with with the potential to win 100 bucks or a $500 gift card or what have you, but it's not good for any of us when the place is as dirty as it is. No, absolutely, absolutely, Patty, and I'm sure you and I take pride in in this province, I mean, and and uh, and most most all of the people, but having said that, I mean, uh, even just driving around recently, wow, I just, I just can't believe it. I don't know why people do it. I'll never understand it, never. And and then we'll take it to uh, the next step, and we'll blame it on the company that sold you the coffee cup or the burger wrapper. 
It's not their fault. They didn't sell you that product to eventually see it on the floor or on the ground. They sold it yep. to you so you could eat the burger or drink the coffee and then discard it the way you normally would as a reasonable person is put it in a garbage bin, a receptacle, bring it home, whatever. It, it, just se- it just seems to me that there's an awful lot of people that do not appreciate this place uh, and the beauty around here. Of course, and, and they mustn't. If they're going to continue like this, throwing out garbage, I mean, it's just beyond 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 reality. I, I, I don't understand it. But anyway, Patty, look, I just wanted to make that known. Appreciate this. Thanks a lot, Brendan. Good luck this season. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Debbie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind, Debbie? A couple of things. Uh, Last month was uh, Canadian Mental Health Association. Sorry, this week is Canadian Mental Health Association, Mental Health Week. Last month was National Child Abuse Awareness Month. So I kind of wanted to tie the two things together. I've recently written my autobiography. I'm a Newfoundlander, grew up on the uh, east coast of Newfoundland, was abused as a child. And because of my child abuse, I ended up uh, with two mental illnesses. Uh, One of them is called complex PTSD, uh, which is um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of people understand what PTSD is because they know it from people who have gone to war and they've lived in the war and they came come back with PTSD. What happened to me, I lived in violence and my developing brain was affected, the same as a soldier's developing, well, not necessarily developing brain, but it had the same effect on my developing brain as what war does on a soldier. So I ended up with complex PTSD. Then I developed a, another mental illness, which is called PNES, which is psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. So because of the stress and the stress response, which was contained in my body, that's how it manifested itself by seizures. Very horrific illnesses that are totally preventable. I am now 63 years old. I was a counselor for 40 years. I uh, have not been able to work for the past 10 years because of my mental illnesses, but I have been becoming more well. And I decided to write my book, tell my story, because both of these illnesses, particularly the PNES part of it, the seizures part of it, Mm -hmm. is not well known at all. So I wanted to tell my story in the hope to help other people. My book was published in June and I've met so many people, talked to so many people that it has been helpful too. But I also wanted to highlight the fact that both of these mental illnesses are totally preventable. If we protect our precious children, which we are not doing, if uh, uh, there's an intervention in a home where a child is being abused, and, and I mean, I can speak to this. I, this happened to me when I was a little girl, and sadly, I see the same thing happening today. There was an intervention in my home where there had been physical violence. The police came, the powers that be, they left me there. But what I'm still seeing all these years later is that there's an intervention in a home where a child is being abused. The child is left there. If you see bruises, you remove the child, but you don't see the emotional bruises. And the and my my fear and my oh, I'm so terrified for the children, and I know it's happening today because I know of some children 
that are living under the circumstances that I lived in, where there's violence, where there's alcoholism, where there's narcissism, all those kinds of things in the home, and that affects the child's developing brain, and they're they're left there to suffer. And I see teenagers today who have anxiety, they have depression, they are suicidal, they have panic attacks, all the things that go with the mental illnesses that I have, and how are those children going to fare off in life? I mean, I survived as a counselor for 25 years, but I was sick long before I was diagnosed. So we need to protect our children. We also need to under, to help our medical professionals understand these mental illnesses, because I think a lot of them don't, and I've been in the system for 10 years now, and I, I thankfully I'm a counselor, and I've had to advocate for my own health care, and I re, my heart goes out to the person who does not understand PNES or does not understand complex PTSD, and you come across a healthcare professional, not probably through their no fault of their own, are not educated in this area, and then to try to fight for the services, and there's already a lack of services in this province. So help us understand a little bit more then about, I think it's PNSE, is that what? The PNES, it's PNES, okay. non-epileptic seizures. What do you want people to know about it? I want people to know, first of all, that they're very little known about it. If you, uh, I, I developed them. I started having a seizure, which, which meant my body was shaking uncontrollably. There, I, I call it talking in tongues. There was voices coming out of me that I, it was very bizarre. Uh, they la- those seizures lasted anywhere from 45 minutes to five hours. I did not know what it was. I ended up on the psychiatric ward in Cornerbrook Hospital. They didn't know. I ended up going to emergency a couple of times. They didn't know. And again, as I said, I did the research, and thankfully I'm a little bit educated in that field, and was able to diagnose myself. I am grateful to have an amazing psychiatrist who did not know what was happening to me either, but I took the information to him. He's since done his research, uh, taken courses on it, and now understands it. So it's what happens when our system because our, our nervous system can only only contain so much. And with me, I had so much horrific abuse in my childhood and on into my adulthood that it just overloaded. It, it short-circuited, I guess, is way of saying it. And it just came out in the form of these seizures. And, you know, I've been able to do therapy, and I've done a lot of therapy throughout my life, but I've been able to do therapy that's helped me to relieve a lot of it. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's a lot better than it used to be. There certainly would have been a time a few years ago that I wouldn't have been able to talk to uh, Patty Daly on VOCM, but today I can. So that, you know, it, there is hope. I also want to let people know that there is hope, but you have to do the hard work to heal. Well, I'm glad you're able to uh, speak with us and join us on the air here this morning. Just a quick uh, note about emotional abuse because we can recognize the bruises as you rightfully point out it becomes a lot more difficult when we talk about you know because abuse comes in many forms emotionally mental it's not all just physical abuse that's where you have to have everybody play a role in that child's life the teacher the parents of their friends to recognize any changes as slight as they may be and you don't have to overreact every single time and think that oh that poor child is being abused at home but the changes can be noticed if we're willing to look for them absolutely and you know it is incumbent on all of us and there's some requirements say for instance if i'm a teacher 
to be much more attentive to it versus say, uh, you know, Johnny plays with my son and I, you know, I'm the dad. So I care about Johnny, but I care about his friends. So we all need to, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, right? We just all need to play that role where if you're really looking for it, sometimes you can see it because how many times has this happened? After the fact, and we hear a story where, oh, my God, that's what's happening in that poor child's home. Mm -hmm. And then you think back to yourself, you know what? I kind of thought there was something going on. So let's not be that person that has to reflect upon, you know, not seeing the signs, not acknowledging the signs, not doing what you can. You don't want to be a busybody and nosing in on everyone's personal business. But when you see something that you think is troubling, acknowledge it as opposed to dismiss it. Oh, absolutely. And I just recall, as I said, I think I said, I'm 63 years old. When I wrote my autobiography, I remember someone saying to me, we knew that was going on in the community. But I mean, back in in the 70s, I was born in 1958. So back in the 70s, when I grew up there, you didn't talk about it. But everybody says, we knew what was going on in your home. Uh, But this particular woman said, I'm really sorry that we didn't do anything. And I said, you know, I hold nothing against you because that wasn't the norm. Everybody just didn't understand. Today we have more education, more awareness, and we do understand. And we all have a legal responsibility to protect our children. So as a teacher and and as a parent or, like you said, as a next-door neighbor, if you see something, please report it. The sad part is, and I've been a person over the years, I've seen the the children being abused. The sad part is I've reported and I've reported, and those children are still in those homes because the system uh, doesn't have enough power to take the emotionally abused children and do something about it. It it needs to be revamped. It really does need to be revamped. It does, and there's probably not even enough available services, even inside the department itself. Child protection might be the most traumatic job a social worker can have, and unfortunately, as my understanding is, with all the seniority considerations, Sometimes, unfortunately, we have the newest social workers dealing with probably the most difficult portfolio at the department. So there's got to be, you know, a better understanding of what's actually going on and then where to turn. I think I can link it uh, clearly to issues that I bring up regarding being chronically absent from school. It's Mm -hmm. one thing to know you're absent, quite another to know the reasons why. Exactly. I mean, if you didn't have a ride or there's poverty issues or there's abuse happening in the home, whatever it is, if we knew it then and we had the Department of Education talking to the department that includes the social workers and talking to the department of Justice and talking to the Department of Health Community Services, we'd probably deal with some of these issues a much more clearer because we'd have more people understanding what's happening versus, well, if it's a social worker issue, it's simply a social worker issue. No, because that might be healthcare, justice, and education all included in that conversation. So yes. there's way to go. Debbie, I'll let you have the final word. Um, all I can say is just please watch out for our children. Protect our precious children. I, I cringe to think that, and I know of children that are going to end up like me. You know, I know of a 13-year-old children who has depression. I know of a 14-year-old child that has anxiety. I know their background. I know where they came from. And it scares me to think that they're going to end up like me. Yes, we're going to have trauma. Trauma is something that can never be avoided. We never know what's around the corner. It could be a car accident. I mean, it doesn't have to necessarily be trauma from home. But we have to protect our children, get them the help that they need. And like you just said, we all have to work together to protect our children. And... uh, Yeah, that's my final word. I'm really pleased you called this morning, Debbie. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking my call and talking to me. Have a great day. Anytime. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's see if we can get a couple in before we run out of time. Line number one, Eugene, you're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. Another busy, busy show today. Hey? It is. We better get right to it before we run out of time. Yes, Go ahead. Sir. Yes, sir. I'm not. I'm not going to be long. Uh, uh, thank you to you and David and VOCM for letting me get on there and voice my concern again. And uh, we did have our demonstration last week about the, uh, the losing our doctor, and I do believe that was a success. And that's not why I'm calling today, but uh, there could be another demonstration in the makings, and I hope that don't happen because people are very concerned. We got a section of highway on Fogo Island, especially between Selum and the center of the island, that people are dodging potholes like bullets, and we have already had four accidents there. Uh, in the last year, including the fatality. I'm not saying the fatality was due to the potholes, but there was a fatality. And so we're very concerned, uh, especially with come home year. And uh, I did uh, get word back from uh, Minister Bragg yesterday saying there's a contract in the makings. Uh, that's good, but it's it really it should be should have been made. Uh, this is something that's supposed to happen last year, got put on the back burner, and it's not good enough. So I would like to challenge Minister Bragg our MHA and our and uh, uh, Minister Loveless, the Minister of, uh, of uh, Transportation and Infrastructure, to come on your show or or, or let the people know. Because I checked with the town of Fogwalton last Thursday, and they didn't know when this was going to happen. So we want to know if that highway is going to be done this summer and when, and uh, 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 ASAP, because it could be a matter of another life or death. Yeah, you know, early tenders are an excellent idea, but it doesn't apply to every bit of road work that goes out the door, unfortunately, because the season is compacted enough, as we're all painfully aware. I appreciate this, Eugene. Thank you. Patty, yes, and again, I challenge the two ministers to let us know what's happening and when it's going to happen. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Appreciate it. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, last word goes to line number four. Deb, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'd like to throw out three bricks this morning. Fire them. One at uh, Diamond Healthcare, one at Dr. Hagee, and one at Premier Fury. For what? I was one of the ones that had my file uh, compromised with this cyber attack. Now, I called the number in St. John's, and all they tell you is where the attack happened. Then you have to call the 833 number, I believe it is, away in order for them to follow up on your um, file for two years you have to have an email and they email you papers that you got to fill out and send back so this is equifax the credit monitoring yes yeah okay and i don't believe it wasn't our mistake it was the health mistake and people like me who are um computer illiterate or what have you, uh, this is not a thing for us. I'm thinking back to the old seniors who are trying to get a vaccine and they said, well, go to your neighbor or a friend or a family. I mean, this is our medical information. You don't want everybody in town knowing it. Yeah, and but I think we should have a, a, our own number here in St. John's where we can get somebody to deal with this. Yeah, you won't be sharing your medical information with Equifax, though. Just your personal info so they can monitor your credit for you so that no one uh, puts a credit card in your name or gets in your bank account or those types of things. They won't ask you about your, your medical information, ju just to give you that as a tidbit uh, yeah, so no, you know. But, but yeah, you, you know, some support you know, for... I understand what you're saying, and I understand that part of it. My big complaint is it wasn't our fault. It happened here under our uh, 
medical, and I think we should be able to deal with somebody here in St. John's, or at least get on the list without having to use a computer or what have you. It should be made more simple because I'm sure there's more seniors like me out there that are uh, illiterate to all this new technology. And it's not fair to us that we can't have our followed because we can't work computer literate. If you and others need some help getting this set up, because of what you've mentioned, that is absolutely something that the government should consider doing because it wasn't your fault. It no. was, and I don't know whose fault it was, but it happened. So I suppose the laying of the finger of blame is, I don't know what that's going to get us, but it's certainly not your fault. Uh, Deb, I appreciate you making time for the show. I'll bring it up again on your behalf. I thank you for that because it's not only me, Patty. I'm yep. sure there's a lot of seniors out there in the same predicament. Absolutely because right. Because I recall them calling in a, when they were trying to book for to get their vaccines and everything. I mean, it's not right to have to go out of your household to get somebody else to do your, do your work for you. Point taken. I really appreciate your call. And thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Take good care. You too. All righty. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, Brian, ready to roll? All right, big thanks for everyone who supports the program. All the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. Yeah, all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.